we could start today by saying, a long time ago, maybe we could say, once upon a time, or there was once... And when we hear those words, if you're anything like me, we awaken with, with that kind of familiar introduction. Uh, it, it introduces us to wonder and to possibility and to imagination, life lessons, uh, patterns for life, examples of how to do it, how you're supposed to do this stuff, and examples also of how not to do it. All of these things arrive through stories, and we love stories. Um, And we're constantly striving to make our story better at the same time. We're shaped by our experiences and our relationships. We make choices about how we will live. And based on those choices, we are writing our story. The story that we would like to have told about us. The story that we would like our children to be able to tell. The story that we'd like our grandchildren to be able to tell. The story of us. How we do how we make our decisions, and and how do they turn out. Our story is constantly being written. It it just doesn't stop. And what we discover is that we are, in fact, made of stories. We're going to tell a story today. In the desert, the mighty desert, the lion, nope, the lamb, sleeps tonight, okay? Um, Now, if, if if you're like me, when... I was going to say when you're a child, but it's not just when you're a child, because I I still do it today. I imagine what it would be like if I had powers. And certainly with the rise of Marvel movies and stuff, it's brought it out that there are are different things. We had the uh, Heroes series that people just wake up one day and they can do things that they couldn't do before. And they can can tell when somebody's lying or they can can lift things that they couldn't normally lift. They can shoot laser beams from their eyes or they have strength or the ability to fly. They have powers. They can do stuff that nobody else can do. And I've always thought that would be nice. And maybe it wasn't powers for you. Maybe it was exceptional ability in an area that you saw yourself scoring the overtime goal, game seven, ah, crowd goes wild. And you imagine that's you when you, or you're baseball and you're running around and it's the World Series and I just scored the run. And we have these stories that we, we want to play in our heads and maybe it's a business that somehow you came up with an idea. Man, you came up with the next Amazon or Google kind of thing. and It's, it's a billion dollar idea and, and you're the one who had it, and everything came in. You're you're, you're a medical person, and you, with your skill, you're able to discern problems in other people that that others can't, and you go, but if we just did this, lives saved. You, You imagine, I imagine, and I like to believe that everyone else imagines these kinds of things as well. I can drive better than anyone else. We have powers. And we and we love to have them. When I was growing up, and still to this day, my favorite superhero is Spider-Man. And I know that somebody else likes Spider-Man as well. When Spider-Man was out there, it was always clear what he did. He was clear on what he was doing. He chased bad guys. We knew that they were bad guys. Um, and, and, And he fought bad guys. And he sent bad guys to prison. Now, not directly the same. But the Gospels say that Jesus is God's own Son, dispatched from heaven to lead the fight against evil, 
Now, with that in mind, this whole picture, I got some, some questions that come to my mind about Jesus' priorities. And at the top of the list, I think natural disasters, right? So if Jesus had the power to cure illness and to raise the dead, why not tackle some of these macro-level problems like earthquakes and hurricanes? Perhaps deal with that whole sinister swarm of mutating viruses that plague the earth. Philosophers and theologians blame mo most of the rest of earth's problems on the consequences of human freedom. So then, do we have too much freedom? Freedom to harm, freedom to kill, freedom to fight global wars, freedom to destroy our planet. We are even free to defy God, to live without restraint, as though the spiritual world does not even exist. And all around us, we see people who do live like this. At least Jesus, Jesus should have come up with some sort of irrefutable proof to silence all the skeptics, tilting the odds decisively in God's favor. As it is, it seems far too easy to ignore or uh, deny God's existence at all. Now, the, the first officially recorded act that Jesus did as an adult was to face his accuser, to face to face, mono a mono, in the desert. And it was there that he addressed some of these problems. Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 1. We have the setup, okay? There's a real tone here of understated drama. Verse 1, Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, just been baptized. This is the first thing that he was doing. And he was led by the Spirit in the desert. Verse 2, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Surprise. Imagine there's the dry tumbleweed that kind of rolls across the foreground. Sand dust blows in front of the camera. and You have that music that sort of sets it up. But I think what's really happening is that we have two super-powered people squaring off. We've got kind of the Spider-Man against the Green Goblin or, or against Dr. Octopus. And, and they found this area that seems to be free from any innocent bystanders. One who's just beginning his mission. He's in enemy territory. He's arrived in a badly weakened state. The other one is confident. He's on his home turf, and he sees the initiative. Verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Four, and Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Where is it written? It's written in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. 6, and he said to him, I will give you authority, all of their authority and all their splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. 7, if you worship me, it will all be yours. Now, this is the verse that is sometimes printed out on Christian coffee mugs and uh, greeting cards. Uh, encouraging, right? 
You really need to make sure who, you know who you are quoting when you're writing out your inspirational, motivational quotes. Verse 8, Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. All right. Take Deuteronomy 6.13. Bam. Your offense is blocked. Not today, Satan. 9. The devil led him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple, looking down over everything. If you are, if you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. Verse 10, for it is written, he's catching on, right? For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. Verse 11, they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan is getting how Jesus is fighting. He's going to take that same technique and use it against him. I can throw scripture back at you. Maybe you have had this come for you as well. What are you going to do now, Jesus? Here comes Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12. Coming at you, bro. 12, Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Is that all you got? I see what you're doing. I see how you're twisting. Defenses are up. Deuteronomy 6.16 is what Jesus throws back. Verse 13, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. It's not done. And I watched this scene in my head, and I'm left wondering, Satan asked Jesus to turn uh, stone into bread, offered him all the kingdoms of the world, and urged him to jump from a high place in order to test God's promise of physical safety, right? So what I wonder, the question that comes up to me is, where is the evil in that? When Spider-Man is challenged, it always seems to involve the, the, the safety of the world or, or at least a train full of people right? Crimes have been committed, and it looks like there's more crimes, more danger, more threats that are just about to occur. occur. There's life, and there's, there's death. It, it, the pressure is on. It's high stress. It's high adrenaline. There's confrontation, and it's immediate. It's physical. You can experience it. But these temptations for Jesus, they just seem like his prerogatives, the very qualities that you might expect to find in a hero slash messiah. You, we know that Jesus would go on to multiply bread for, for more than 5,000. Is that not a far more impressive display, right? 5,000 breads or one breads? He would also conquer death and rise again and become the king of kings, becoming known as the most powerful being in the entire universe. The three temptations, they do not really seem evil, you know? Not, not so evil that you would have to say it as evil. The three temptations were not evil in themselves, and yet clearly something pivotal happens in that desert. The temptation unmasked Satan while God remained masked. If you are Satan, if you are God, said Satan, then dazzle me. Act like God should act. And Jesus replied, only God makes those decisions. Therefore, I do nothing at your command. 
And what we are expecting is for Jesus, what we are wanting is for Jesus to go out and teach Satan some manners, right? Teach him some respect. Let me show you what I can do, Mr. Bad Guy. We want, and we want Jesus to, but we want to triumph by kicking evil's butt. But that's not what happens. After being human 30 years, Jesus would know what it's like to be human. And you look back at those three temptations, and I see that Satan proposed an enticing improvement. He tempted Jesus towards the good parts of being human without the bad, to savor the taste of bread without being subject to the fixed rules of hunger and agriculture, to confront risk with no real danger, to enjoy fame and power without the prospect of painful rejection, to wear a crown but not a cross. The temptation that Jesus resisted many of us, his followers, we still long for. While filming a documentary in Israel, Malcolm Muggeridge found himself musing on this temptation, and this is what he wrote. He said, Curiously enough, just at the right moment to begin filming, when the shadows were long enough and the light not yet too weak, I happened to notice nearby a whole expanse of stones, all identical and looking uncommonly like loaves well-baked and brown. How easy for Jesus to have turned these stones, these stone loaves, into edible ones, as later he would turn water into wine at a wedding feast. And after all, why not? The Roman authorities distributed free bread to promote Caesar's kingdom, and Jesus could do the same to promote his. Jesus had but to give a nod of agreement, and he could have constructed Christendom, not only on four shaky gospels and a defeated man nailed to a cross, but on a basis of sound socioeconomic planning and principles. Every utopia could have been brought to pass. Every hope have been realized and every dream made to come true. What a benefactor then Jesus would have been. What a savior acclaimed equally in the London School of Economics and the Harvard Business School, a statue in Parliament Square and an even bigger one on Capitol Hill and in Red Square. Instead, he turned the offer down on the grounds that only God should be worshipped. So as Muggeridge sees it, the temptation revolved around the question uppermost in the minds of Jesus' countrymen. What should the Messiah look like? What should our Savior be like? A people's Messiah who could turn stone into bread to feed the multitudes. Maybe a, a, a Torah Messiah standing tall at the lofty pinnacle of the temple. A King Messiah ruling over not just Israel, but all the kingdoms of earth. In short, Satan was offering Jesus the chance to be the thundering Messiah, the superhero that we all think that we want. 
And I got to tell you that I recognize in Muggeridge's thoughts the Messiah that I think I want. Who wants Spider-Man to lose? We want anything but a suffering Messiah. And so did Jesus, at least on one level. And Satan hit closest to home with his suggestion that Jesus throw himself from a high place to test God's care. And that temptation would surface again. It comes back. Satan would return at an opportune time. And once in a flash of anger, Jesus gives Peter a strong rebuke. He says, out of my sight, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have the mind You do not have in mind the things of of God, but the things of men. And Peter had recoiled at at, at Jesus as he was predicting his own suffering and death. And he said, never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And, And that instinctively protective reaction had hit a nerve. In Peter's words, Jesus heard again the allure of Satan tempting him toward an easier way. Nailed to the cross, Jesus would hear that last temptation repeated again as a taunt. Criminal beside him scoffed, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. And and, and not just that guy, but the spectators take it up. Let let him come down from the cross and and we will believe in him. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. But there was no rescue, there was no miracle, no easy, painless path. For Jesus to save others, quite simply, he could not save himself. That fact he must have known as he faced Satan in the desert. The easy way, the fast way. He could win over the crowds. He could do it by creating food on demand and then take control of the kingdoms of the world, all while protecting himself from danger. John Milton wrote a uh, famous poem called Paradise Regained, and he has Satan saying to Jesus, why move thy feet so slow to what is best? Fyodor Dostoevsky, in his great novel, The Brothers Karamazov, uses as his centerpiece a poem called The Grand Inquisitor. Some of you would know this story. In 16th century Seville, at the height of the Inquisition, Jesus returns, disguises himself, and visits the city at a time when heretics are being burned at the stake. And the Grand Inquisitor, the guy in charge, the big head honcho, a cardinal, An old man, almost 90 years old, he's tall and erect. He's got a withered face and sunken eyes. He recognizes, even in disguise, he recognizes Jesus and then has him thrown in prison. And the inquisitor has an accusation to make, and so he comes to Jesus. This is his thinking. By turning down the three temptations, Jesus forfeited the three greatest powers at his disposal, miracle, mystery, and authority. He's thinking, Jesus should have followed Satan's advice and performed the miracles on demand in order to increase his fame among the people. He should have welcomed the offer of authority and power. Did Jesus not realize that people want more than anything else to worship what is established beyond dispute? 
This is what the inquisitor says to Jesus. Instead of taking possession of man's freedom, you increased it and burdened the spiritual kingdom of mankind with his sufferings forever. You desired man's free love that he should follow you freely, enticed and taken captive by you. By resisting Satan's temptations to override human freedom, the Inquisitor maintains Jesus made himself far too easy to reject. He surrendered his greatest advantage, the power to compel belief. Fortunately, continues the sly Inquisitor, the church recognized the error and corrected it and has been relying on miracle, mystery, and authority ever since. For this reason, the Inquisitor must execute Jesus one more time, lest he hinder the church's work. The former Soviet Union reminds us of the basic lessons in the temptation that goodness cannot be imposed externally from the top down. It must grow internally from the bottom up. And as powerful as Spidey is, he cannot really change anything. His speed, agility, strength, and even that special spider sense. He could walk on walls and ceilings. He can swing from his webs, but he can only work to suppress evil. He could never really defeat it. We always expected that the two combatants would meet again in a future edition. We like the fight, the battle, but Jesus fought to really win and to defeat evil in a complete way. Now, many people have said that uh, Christianity and communism have many of the same ideals. They overlap in lots of places like equality and sharing and supposedly justice and racial harmony. Yet that pursuit of that Marxist vision has produced some of the worst nightmares that the world has ever seen. Why? Why is that the outcome of those things? We, we get a quote from one of the, uh, the editors of that communist newspaper, the, the communist mouthpiece newspaper called Pravda. This is what he said. We don't know how to motivate people to show compassion. We tried raising money for the children of Chernobyl, but the average Russian citizen would rather spend his money on drink. How do you reform and motivate people? How do you get them to be good? 74 years of closed communism have proved beyond all doubt that goodness could not be legislated. And the Kremlin, legislated by the Kremlin, and then enforced at the point of a gun. In a heavy irony, attempts to compel morality, you know where this is going, attempts to compel morality tend to produce defiant subjects and tyrannical rulers who lose their moral core. Even Spider-Man is often faced with the question of how far can you go before you are no different than the ones you are fighting. Humans have learned much from Satan's style of power. We set up governments. We fight wars. We even cheer on Spider-Man when he beats up the bad guy and then he leaves him hanging from the edge of a building all wrapped up in webs for the police to collect. That's what we're used to. 
We like the way it makes us feel. Satan's power is external and it's coercive. God's power, in contrast, is internal and non-coercive. To us, that means it looks confusing. Such power at times may seem like weakness and certainly too slow. And its commitment to transform gently from the inside out and its, dependent, its relentless dependence on human choice. Sometimes I wish that God had a heavier touch. And, and, and I don't mean uh, just that I want him to whack you. Uh, I, I don't just mean that. Of course, that is what I want some of the time, right? But my faith suffers from too much freedom, uh, too many temptations to disbelieve, to walk away, to say that's enough. I don't get it. I don't care. And at times, I want God to just overwhelm me, to overcome all of my doubts with certainty to give final proofs of his existence and, and of his concerns so that there would never be a question again. I want God to take a more active role in human affairs as well, like war. I don't like it. War crimes, human sex trafficking, riots, rampant injustice and suffering. Why must God sit on his hands? I want God to take a more active role in my personal history too. I want quick and spectacular answers to my prayers. I want healing for my diseases and my failures, and I want protection for, for, and safety for my friends, for my family, for me, for you. I want to do that for you. I want a God without ambiguity, one to whom I can point to every single person, regardless of their station in life, and point at it and say, there's the proof. No more doubt. And when I think these thoughts, I recognize in myself a thin, hollow echo of the challenge that Satan hurled at Jesus 2,000 years ago. God resists those temptations now just as Jesus resisted them on earth, settling instead for a slower, gentler way. The miracle of restraint. The miracles that, that Satan suggested, the signs and wonders demanded, and even the final proofs that I yearn for are no problem for an omnipotent God, the kind of God that I believe in. More amazing is his refusal to perform, to overwhelm, to shock and awe. God's terrible insistence on human freedom is so absolute that he granted us the power to give me the power that I could live as though he does not exist, to spit in his face and to crucify him. All this Jesus must have known as he faced down the tempter in the desert, focusing his mighty power on the energy of restraint. I believe God insists on such restraint because no pyrotechnic displays of omnipotence and power and wonder will achieve the response that he desires. Although power can force obedience, Spider-Man usually manages to subdue his foe. Only love can summon a response of love, which is the one thing that God wants from us and the reason that he created us. Why does God content himself with the painfully slow, unencouraging way of making righteousness grow rather than avenging it? 
Because that's how love is. Love has its own power, the only power ultimately capable of conquering the human heart. Even though Satan was rebuffed by Jesus three times, I bet that he left the battle with a smirk on his face. Jesus' steadfast refusal to play by Satan's rules meant that Satan himself could continue playing by those rules. Restraint by God creates opportunity for those who oppose God. From Satan's perspective, the temptation offered a new lease on life. The kids from Lord of the Flies could continue to roam the island and do all that they do just a little bit longer and apparently still free from any adult authority. Furthermore, even better, God could be blamed for everything that went wrong. If God insisted on sitting on his hands while devilment like the Crusades and the Holocaust went on, why not blame the parent, not the kids? And by turning down the temptations in the desert, Jesus put God's own reputation at risk. God has promised to restore earth to perfection one day. We long for that day, but what about in the meantime? What do people think of God as life progresses, that swamp of human history, the brutality even in our church history, the apocalypse to come? Are all these worth the divine restraint? To put it bluntly, is human freedom worth the cost? And Jesus seemed to think so. The choice could not have been easy, for it involved his own pain as well as all of his followers' pain, my pain, your pain, our pain. And as, as, as I survey the rest of Jesus' life, I see the pattern of restraint established in the desert. It persisted throughout his life. I never sensed Jesus twisting a person's arm. And as his life moved toward doom in Jerusalem, he exposed Judas, one of his closest. And Jesus did not try to prevent the wickedness, that too, a consequence of restraint. It was a physical manifestation of trust in his heavenly Father. Because I trust you, I will allow this to go. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus said, in what might just have been the least manipulative invitation that has ever been given. And unfortunately, the church has often held a mentality that doctrine is ditched out in a believe it and don't ask questions style, wielding the power of miracle, mystery, and authority. That church left no place for doubt, and yet we know that we all have doubt. World War II, Germany, Hitler's Germany, a Germany that exposed the German church looking for expedience. Helmut Heilecki, he wrote about the churches, the German churches, early infatuation of Hitler. He said, the worship of success is generally the form of idol worship, which the devil cultivates most assiduously. Insight that continues to echo in our present world right now. And I'm quick to diagnose flaws in history, in institutions, and sometimes even in others. But when I examine myself, I find that I too am vulnerable to the temptation. I don't want to resist shortcut solutions 
to human needs. I want miracle. I love the patience to allow God to work in a slow, gentlemanly way, but I loathe it at times as well. And maybe you feel the same. And when I feel those temptations inside rising up, I I, I return to that story of Jesus and Satan in the desert. Jesus, his resistance against Satan's temptations preserved for me the very freedom that I exercise when I face my own temptations. I pray for the same trust and the same patience that Jesus showed. And beyond that, I celebrate the truth within Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those of us who are being tempted. That is something that is truly beyond Spider-Man's abilities. Then, after realizing that truth about who our high priest is, what Jesus is like, what he has gone through, how we can relate to him. We, get, we, we, we take hope from that and we take a call to action. We respond because of this great and powerful truth that we just read. I can now enjoy the strength of relationship. Verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And we all are aware that there are times of need. This is where you go for your hope. This is where you go for peace. This is where you go for strength into that relationship that Jesus has walked before you and now promises to walk with you. Kind Father, I thank you again for the life that we have of Jesus, to look back, to learn from what he has done, to find out how to do life, to find out how to face things. And that's a a story that I I can put into my life story. I can add that as a chapter in my story. This is training for me, and and when I'm in these situations, how do I choose? How do I follow? How do I run an earnest pursuit of you? How do I behave in a way that Jesus behaved following the same mindset that he had. That same mindset of Christ who did not consider his position something to be grasped and held onto, but instead he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Jesus, we look to follow you, not because we're hoping for magic, but because we trust in you. We put our full weight on you. And we thank you for your example, for your stories, for the life that you lived out in the open, fully public and on camera. Thank you for what we can take from it. Empower us to live in this world, in this week, in this day, with the people that are around us. May we choose wisely and choose Jesus. Thanks for sticking with us closer than a brother. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.